0: Uh, Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name is Paul Coster. I cover uh, IT hardware and alternative energy for JP Morgan. I'm joined by my teammate, Paul Chung, uh, who partners with me on coverage. And uh, today is May 25th. It's the JP Morgan uh, 45th TMC conference, I believe. I feel like I've been here for all of them, but uh, uh, perhaps half of them. Um, and uh, before we start, I just want to remind the audience that you are welcome to submit questions through the JP Morgan website, please do so, I will weave them into the discussion. And the discussion uh, is with uh, uh, Greg Lowe, the President and CEO of uh, Cree, and we'll also have Neil Reynolds, CFO, and Tyler Gronback who many of you know as the head of IR, uh, on the call with us. Good morning, everyone.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today and thanks for having us, Paul. All
0: right, thanks, Greg. So perhaps you can uh, give us a quick overview of uh, of this company that's transformed so much in the three years since you've been uh, leading it.
1: Well, it's a pretty huge transformation, Paul, and it's basically 180 degrees opposite of where we were going. We, uh, over the last three years, we have sold the lighting business at Cree We sold the LED business at Cree most recently and have become a pure play compound semiconductor company um, focused on silicon carbide and gallium nitride. That's 100% the focus of the company. We've got a tremendous uh, position in a very rapidly expanding and growing market. We're super excited about it and uh you know there's we we can talk a, a little bit about some of the applications but probably the one that most is prominent to most investors is the electrification of the powertrain of the vehicle or the move from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles and uh you know silicon carbides having a, a huge uh, opportunity there and we've got a lot of exciting things going on so Basically, we've um, completely transformed the company, completely changed the focus and narrowed the focus to uh, compound semiconductors, silicon carbide, gallium nitride. Um, we're a pure play in in that regard. Um, we're in the midst of a pretty rapid expansion, both in capacity and that capacity expansion uh, comes in the form of both materials and in our wafer fabs. Um, but it comes at a time when capacity in semiconductors is a really important topic for all of our customers I'm sure most investors realize what's going on with with silicon and the shortage of silicon in the in the uh, semiconductor industry the fact that we are you know bringing on to into production in really seven months time um, the world's largest silicon carbide fab is a really nice ray of hope for customers who are very, very interested in supply chains, um, assurance of supply chains, and assurance of uh, capacity. So, pretty big transformation over the last couple of years. It's been super exciting, but um, you know, we've only we've only sort of just begun in terms of our our, our future here.
0: Well, I notice uh, from uh, the video here that uh, you have a logo on your shirt there, and it's not a Cree logo. So, when are we going to see the name uh, change and? Uh uh,
1: et cetera. We have announced that we will be changing our name from Cree to Wolfspeed. And uh, that change is going to happen probably in the fall of this year. Kind of think of it as the October timeframe. We've already got a lot of actions in place to, to go make that happen. And I think that's going to be really good from a, from a branding perspective. Customers who, who understand Silicon Carbide, understand the Wolfspeed brand. And um, it's got a very, very strong reputation in the industry. And it'll keep us from the confusion of, do you still do lights and do you still do LEDs and things like that? All of that, that Cree uh, branding will, be, uh, will, will no longer be part of uh, what we're doing. So it'll be, it'll be a Wolfspeed brand. A lot of really good um, activity going on on that. So kind of stay tuned. But uh, think of it as kind of the October timeframe uh, when that transition will be fully complete.
0: Well, so it will be rebranding of the company with your customers in the industry, but it uh, sounds like it's an opportunity to sort of conclude some of the rebranding with investors as well. Um, are you likely to have an analyst day to accompany that or following it?
1: Yeah, sometime? yeah, we, we do have that currently in our uh, in our sites. And again, that would be kind of in that end of September, October timeframe. We are um, planning to do that. At our location in New York, the new fab in New York. So it'll be a, also an opportunity for investors to come visit the factory, see what it's like. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, if, if you visited that factory uh, uh, just a year ago or so, you'd be standing in mud. Um, today, you'd be standing on the fourth floor of a building. Um, and, and actually, Paul, um, in the next four weeks, we'll be installing our first uh, set of tools into that facility. Um, and so we'll begin the, the transition from, you know, an empty facility to, a, a you know, a wafer fab. And then the anticipation is, is that we would begin uh, running production in the first part of calendar 22. And that production then would be for qualification. So we'd go through an internal qualification and then customer qualifications. So, you know, that's just seven months away where we're going to be running you know, qualification material through that fab. Super excited about that. It'll be the world's largest silicon carbide fab, and uh, the world's only 200-millimeter uh, fab.
0: So uh, if you have an analyst day uh, around about fall or early winter, then I assume that there'll be something to see. It's going to be pre-production, but there will be actual operations with some magnets.
1: Yeah, it probably won't be full operating, but uh, yeah, there certainly will be – operations going on um, pretty, you know, the, the fab won't be full because it would, you know, it'll be the first couple of lines installed and so forth. But yeah, absolutely. That's the anticipation.
0: All right, we'll hurry along here because I'm seeing questions starting to come in. So uh, you've made this bet on uh, silicon. It's not really a bet. I mean, it's an investment at this point uh, with good visibility, but you've committed to silicon carbide and gallium nitride. And I think you've really given us the thesis, but just can you give us What's the point? Why is silicon uh, carbide and gallium nitride so important?
1: Well, first off, silicon carbide as a, as a substrate is dramatically more efficient than silicon, 10x more efficient from electron mobility uh, perspective. And so what that translates to is that um, end equipments that utilize silicon carbide um, are more efficient in the utilization of power. And the higher uh, the voltage goes and the higher the power you need, the better silicon carbide performs versus silicon. And what that specifically translates to in electric vehicles is for a given size of battery, or for a given amount of battery that you put into an, into an electric car, your car will have a longer range for the same amount of battery. And that longer range can any, I've seen reports anywhere from five to 15 percent. And this is a big deal because range is a huge um, selling point for electric cars. And uh, you know, new cars that are coming out, sort of 400 is kind of the, the benchmark bogey that most people are going after. Um, there are cars that have been announced. Lucid publicly announced a, a new vehicle with a 517 mile range, you know, which is you know pretty good. Um, and then the other thing that's really interesting is, is that um, silicon carbide, you know, as I mentioned, it works better at higher voltages. Higher voltages are better for faster charging. So you get a better range and you get the ability to actually increase that range faster through fast charging. So it's kind of a good combination, but that's the, that's the fundamental you know, theory on, on silicon carbide. We are a leading producer of silicon carbide substrates. We have something on the order of 60% share of those substrates, so we, we know a lot about that. And we're actually, we're, we're working very, very hard to drive the cost of those silicon carbide substrates down so that we can see continued adoption of silicon carbide across a broader range of the power semiconductor market.
0: Oh, right. You, I, you've done quite a bit of work on sizing the market opportunities. And I realize, you know, at least one of them is very open-ended. So it's all just a moment in time stuff. But what are the, the opportunities you're looking at over the next few years?
1: Well, maybe Tyler, you can give, you know, kind of a different set of numbers for each of the different areas. But, you know, electric vehicles is obviously a huge portion of that. You know, in terms of uh, content, there's some are in the order of $300 worth of content in, in the average electric car. And that's mostly in the powertrain. There's some in the onboard charging and then DC to DC. There's content in offboard charging. So the charging stations that you see around the world in a high, um, in a high speed charging station, you can kind of think of it as about thousand dollars of content, you know, per per vehicle. Um, there's industrial opportunities as well, and we've got, uh, you know, this is where you've got thousands of customers, where each individual opportunity is small, but collectively, you know, it's a it's a big opportunity. And then in terms of gallium nitride, you see GAN on silicon carbide is really an opportunity for us in the 5G base station um, applications, where you know uh, power density and uh, those sorts of things come to come to play. This has obviously been an area that's had a bunch of turbulation for us because uh, you know the largest customer was Huawei, and and they were uh, they were banned as a customer. But we're starting to see you know a pickup in five G now, and and the adoption of uh, of uh, other companies in that space where we've got a lot of good opportunities. So. You know, Tyler, I don't know if you want to give some additional specific numbers around uh, some of those things, but pretty pretty big opportunity for us.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think, Paul, the way to think about it is if you take the opportunity pipeline of $10 billion and kind of, you know, break that down, you know, right now, about more than a little more than half of that is really focused on automotive, like Greg said. And then what you see is kind of, a, you know, the remainder of that pipeline segmented across those things for RF. Uh, and and then you know industrial. and those are into things like solar and and aerospace and defense. So we see a lot of robustness. you know the big opportunity definitely is with automotive and and that's when you look at the design wins. so the 2.5 billion of design wins that we've announced over the last five quarters, think about half of that is for automotive devices. and then like I said, the rest is kind of split across that spectrum. So the good news is we're winning our fair share. You know, that puts us on track for that $1.5 billion in revenue <clears throat> that we've talked about in 2024. And the opportunity still remains in there. You know, we're well above $10 billion, which is current year, plus five. And that's really a good way to think about how, uh, you know, what we're
0: chasing at the moment. Right. Got it. And I mean, do you have a choice about where you go here or... Uh, Do you kind of, are you following your customers? What's the, how do you decide where you're gonna allocate your um, resources?
1: Well, you know, obviously uh, from the device perspective, um, it it starts with, we've got a huge opportunity in the automotive space that's in the midst of a big transition. Um, And then in terms of the broader industrial space, Paul, I think you bring up a really important point because we've got a very, very limited sales footprint. We can cover the automotive guys because, you know, it's a, it's a relatively finite set of customers, uh, in some respects. Um, but, uh, in the industrial side of things, you're talking about thousands of customers and we just don't have that, that sales footprint to cover them. So what we've done is we've partnered with Aero Electronics. They're one of, they are the world's largest or one of the world's largest Um, distribution partners. They've got a huge technical uh, sales force that uh, we've been able to leverage and work with. We have an exclusive arrangement with them where they are our exclusive global uh, distributor for the Wolfspeed products. We've actually done several new product launches with them exclusively a 650 volt program, 1200 volt program. And it's just been phenomenal. And I, I don't know the exact numbers, but they have Probably two orders of magnitude more feet on the street than we do, and just you know, I I, I can't tell you you know the the, uh, the when when they're identifying you know programs for us, uh, they're identifying programs in countries where we don't even have employees. So you know, it's just a phenomenal relationship. Both Neil and I are heading out to Denver in the, in the next couple of weeks to go do a you know sort of a regular visit with them. They're doing a fantastic job for us, but that's, that's you know, you, you hit a really important point, which is how do you allocate resources? And in this particular case, we really made a very clear conscious decision to say, we just can't get there from here, so let's go partner with somebody. And they've been really a fantastic partner, you know, in, in helping us uh, sort of evangelize the silicon carbide industry.
0: Weave together a question I've got with that of one of our clients here, and, and it's to do with the uh, sense of this visibility into growth. It, it's really palpable, but um, it's also a little bit difficult to pin down exactly. You've got a billion dollars in um, long term contracts for materials, I believe. Um, you've got at least 750 million, 700 million in designing wins. Uh, you've got a device pipeline opportunity that you pegged around about 10 billion. Um, when you put it all together, what does it mean <laughs> in terms of the revenues, uh, visibility and the, the timing and magnitude of the ramp that we should see?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, Paul. And so, you know, we have a lot of things going on for sure. And we've got a target of $1.5 billion of revenue for WolfSpeed in the 24, uh, in, in 2024. And of that $1.5 billion, we're anticipating 900 million of that being device revenue. So power, semiconductor chips, RF, you know, et cetera. And then 600 million being, um, in, in the materials side of things. So what that translates to is a steeper growth rate of the device business. Both device and materials will be growing over that time period, but the device business will be growing much more rapidly and so it's it'll be an evolution and a change from a pure materials, you know, company to more of a mix in the interim to more of a device manufacturer over a longer period of time.
0: And and I mean in terms of the the ramp is it a sort of parabolic curve is it a straight line how do you
1: uh, it's definitely not a straight line, and, and so you know we're 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 in the early phase of you know pretty interesting adoption, and so what you're going to see is right now we've got um, actually about two point five billion dollars worth of design ins that we've announced over the last four or five quarters or so, uh, some of those on the early phase of you know initial pre production ramp, if you will, um, we've got a customer in town here in Durham today that we're talking about that initial pre-production ramp. I'll be visiting with them in, in about a half hour or so. And, um, you know, so we've got customers in pre-production ramp, and then their customers will be launching and, and ramping in 22, 23, and 24. And so you'll see a car line come online, and that will jump our revenue. And then you'll see another car line, you know, and that, that one will, you know, go out in production, and you'll see another one and another one. So you're going to see a series of stair steps. won't be a straight line um, in between now and then and i think neil talked about it in our in our last um investor day saying you know between now and 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 22 we're really in the capacity expansion phase 22 to 24 you see some initial you know ramp you know happening bringing us to that 1.5 billion dollars and then, really beyond that, it's it's a pretty substantial amount of of ramp happening. You know, beyond that too, we'll be talking about that at the next investor day. I don't know, Neil, if you want to be a little any more clarity on that.
3: No, I think I think that's um, I think that's exactly it. You know, Greg, I think there's going to be ebbs and flows in the business. You know, we have you know a lot of production capacity we're moving around right now in anticipation of a lot of this um, you know revenue growth. So I kind of kind of see you know 21, 22, kind of maybe maybe more modest growth. Then as you get up to 23, 24, you should start seeing it pick up a bit, just as Greg had uh, kind of mentioned. But in our view, that's really only getting the business and maybe even the industry to a certain extent to scale, because the there, there's far more growth and opportunity out beyond this 20, 24, 25 stamp uh, time frame than than there is before. Mm-hmm. So it's really getting everything up to scale, whether that be From a customer standpoint and what they're delivering or what we're doing internally from a capacity expansion standpoint, both at the fabs and from a materials perspective, uh, which is also why we, you know, uh, why we think that the 200 millimeter program for us plays such an important role in creating this kind of bigger aperture, you know, for the business as you get out beyond 24. Because, look, uh, right now we're talking about, you know, 5, 7, 10 percent by 24, 25 in terms of EV adoption rate. But most customers we're talking about to right now think that's going to be 30, 40% by 2030. So, you know, the size of the industry and the growth out beyond 24, you know, is probably the more important factor. I think what we got to do between now and then is get our business uh, ready for that ramp. And uh, I really think that's what's what's going on in most of the industry.
0: We're in this sort of strange uh, place at the moment uh, with uh, with Wolf Speed. It feels like a very much like a hurry up and wait story. Um, you've got this tremendous opportunity ahead, but it's ahead. It's never quite here. And yet we're in, also in a world, and I'm weaving in a customer question here, uh, where everyone needs silicon solutions real fast and they're not available, and you're not quite in that place at the moment. So are you nonetheless seeing some elements of customers kind of ordering ahead now in anticipation of shortages in silicon carbide just as they're seeing them in regular silicon products?
1: No, we don't see it exactly um, that way because, you know, the customers that are, that are hurting for silicon solutions, I mean, you know, they got lined down, they got tons of problems and, you know, I've talked to a lot of them and, you know, quite frankly, Paul, the the issue is there's not a nice light at the end of the tunnel because there's not a lot of capacity coming online. And that's definitely different from our perspective. You know, we can point to a new building that has dramatically more capacity than we have today. And that's that's a really big benefit for us today. Um, you know, I, I would love to tell you, Paul, that two years ago when we announced the creation of this and, and the investment in this fab, that we predicted that there would be a shortage of semiconductor chips and that, you know, having capacity would be a big deal. We weren't that smart. Um, it just kind of fell into our lap but here it is today where all of our customers that we're talking about designing in for 23, 24 and 25 are all lined down on their existing thing today. And one of the big questions is, what are you doing from a capacity? And I show them a picture of you know, this new fab and the dramatic size increase, you know, et cetera. And it's more than a big check mark. It's, yeah. it's a really yeah. big deal. And so this has become a really nice feather in our cap you know, um, like I said, we look really smart. It's total luck, I think, you know, that, that the industry is having this issue at the same time that we're ramping the capacity. But, you know, we're using it to our advantage and, you know, telling customers that we're, we're investing. Uh, we're investing in a wafer fab. And, th- and the beauty of this thing is that uh, this isn't some fab that's going to go online some long distance from the future right now. We're gonna be installing equipment into this wafer fab in the next four weeks, first tools in the, in the next four weeks, and then beginning production for qualification in the beginning of 22, so that's seven months from now. So this isn't, you know, maybe perhaps in the future we might expand, you know, this is real stuff. And so it's, it's making it, it's having a very nice influence on our customers, um, uh, you know, design and behavior, I would say.
0: It's going to be state-of-the-art, it's going to be large-scale, um, it's going to be somewhat automated, if not fully automated to the extent practical, You're, you'll have a vertically integrated solution set, okay. it's, a lot of, it's going to be a, a real differentiator for a long time, because even if someone wanted to catch up with you, how long would it take them to catch up?
1: It would take some time. And, and Paul, just to, just to add just a, two comments there, it will be fully automated. Um, and just to kind of put things in perspective, we just checked some data here earlier today, you know, in terms of human touches to wafers in our fabs today, you know, it's well in excess of 10,000 touches per day. Um, in our current facilities that will go to zero in our new factory and you know human intervention in a, in a manufacturing process equals bad things and so going to automation is really going to be you know really positive and then finally you know recall that this will be the world's first 200 millimeter factory right, right, so and go, so having that 200 millimeter factory is going to be a really you know nice advantage you know part of the um part of the uh, the deal that we got with the state of New York was a prototype line up in SUNY, Alb- SUNY Albany. And that was a silicon carbide wafer fab prototype line. We converted that line to 200 millimeter a while ago. And so we've been running 200 millimeter on that prototype line. And we're really happy with what's happening from a yield perspective out of that prototype line um, on, 200 millimeter wafers. So, you know, 200 millimeter wafers over 150 millimeter wafers, roughly 70% more chips per wafer. And then we're having, excuse me, a yield, which is north of what we're currently yielding in our existing fab. So it it equates to a nice cost advantage that we'll get out of New York.
0: So, um, I mean, what that translates to is you're able to make commitments today for delivery of um, certain, you know, large-scale unit volumes, high yield. We hope um, at a, the right price point for your large auto OEMs to feel confident they can now proceed. Right. That is correct. Because otherwise, you you'd be on their critical path, right?
1: You know, if we weren't if we weren't in the process of building this fab right now, we'd have a lot tougher argument with our customers. You know, in terms of count on us for the future. They see this fab, they see what we're doing with the fab, they see the progress that we're making. Um, We show them, you know, the results out of the prototype line and it gives them a great degree of comfort that, um, you know, there's a really nice, from a silicon carbide perspective, there's a really nice light at the end of the tunnel. And quite frankly, from a silicon perspective, they, you know, they're just, they're struggling with it. I've talked to customers who have hundreds of different chips that are causing line down,
0: you know, problems and
1: you're not hearing about the same kind of investment in, in Silicon.
0: So I think it was end of 19 or thereabouts, you set in motion this billion dollars of investment. Um, maybe I've got the timing wrong a bit, but no, I've got the number right. Uh, Neil, where are we now? And you know, how much more cash, uh, CapEx are we going to see, uh, before this is concluded?
3: Well, I think, you know, Paul, as we laid out the the business plan, you know, clearly 2021, 2021, even 22, were kind of heavy investment years, you know, in order to scale the business and create the right type of, you know, manufacturing footprint, you know, the right type of, you know, R&D footprint or sales footprint to ensure that, you know, we can capture this opportunity. So I think, you know, we said, you know, this year we're going to, you know, expand our CapEx to $550 uh, which is really re- related to a faster build out of the fab, which is a good thing versus what we initially communicated, as well as the launch of the 200 millimeter program to go fully 200 millimeter, you know, out of the gate in Mohawk Valley. So, um, I'd say a lot of that, you know, for us, a lot of this in terms, of, a lot of this investment is really timing to a certain extent because it just depends on the, you know, the plan as you get out to uh, you know 2024 and beyond. So, you know, right now uh, I think this will be still be the peak year uh, in terms of investment, and then um, next year we'll see that you know drop off. Um, you know, that is, we still have to finish building up the FAB. We'll have tool sets that need to come in. Secondly, we're building out the 200 millimeter platform and that capacity as well. And then once you get up beyond, you know, you know, 22, 23. Uh, and in addition, you start to see some of the benefits we have from our partnership with the state of New York. So about half a billion dollars of um, incentives that will come in in cash as well. So that'll help offset um, as you kind of work out in that kind of 22, 23 timeframe. Then after that, I think you're more, I want to say steady state, because as I said before, the growth rates are still pretty substantial, but I think the business gets to scale. And what I mean by that is you start to think about, um, you know, growth rates and margins and, you know, you know, an OPEX level that gets you to, you know, roughly a 25%, you know, EBIT level and pretty significant free cash flow as you get out beyond that period. So, you know, we're still in that investment phase right now. And um, I think we're in pretty good shape. And if you look at the balance sheet, you know, we got well over a billion dollars in liquidity to kind of support this. So, which, I, by the way, is also another important part of this um, you know, equation. You know, not only do we want to point customers to the fact that we've got this capacity availability uh, down the road, or we're, re- we're very well-funded to support them, and that can be for not just what's you know, out in front of us right now, but in the anticipation that you know, they wanna, you know, if they wanted to be more aggressive, we can support that as well. So I think we're very well-positioned to kind of manage through this. Now, in the meantime, it's a, you know, there's, there's a lot to work through. There's, a, there's bumps in the road. There's ups and downs that you kind of work through, you know, getting the company to scale. Uh, But right now, if you look at the horizon, I think we're, you know, we're on track to what we had anticipated.
0: I think there's a tendency amongst investors uh, to uh, oversimplify the crease story. (laughs) So on the one hand, you've got, wow, this massive growth opportunity must be supply constrained. On the other hand, in the near term, your gross margins have been uh, a little disappointing. And so it's a disconnect. Why is it? And I think it's something to do with the mix of uh, products and the mix of locations and so on. Can you help us understand this disconnect?
1: Yeah, we've got a, we've got, a, I'll let Neil go through a detail, but you know, obviously we're growing our device business and we're growing that in the existing fab infrastructure that we have. The fabs that we have in North Carolina are subscale. They're non-automated, you know, I talked about greater than 10,000 wafer touches, you know, per day in these facilities. Um, The yield entitlement that you would expect out of this factory is uh, sizably lower than you would expect out of a normal, highly automated factory. We're ramping automotive products which have higher levels of quality expectations, so you've got things you need to work through there. So I I think it's really, you know, when you, when you talk about the mix, um, it's, it's a growth of a, of a, of the product line in an existing wafer fab infrastructure that is subscale and not ideal, you know, from a cost perspective. Um, you add all that to that, the complications associated with COVID and all this stuff that we've had to deal with. Um, it complicates things as well. But the fundamental issue is is that we've got subscale fabs that are non-automated and, um, you know, have a entitlement yield that's just gonna get us so far. Um, As we ramp the new uh, facility, um, forget about the advantage of 200 millimeter for a second, just from a, a yield, a automation perspective, you know, ability to get things through that factory, we're gonna see a nice increase you know, or decrease in terms of cost increase in terms of productivity just in that factory, and then you add to that 200 millimeter, you know, it's going to be pretty, pretty nice. And Neil, I don't know if you want to add any additional color there.
3: Yeah, I think, I think big picture, I think that's exactly it. I mean, um, you know, you get questions on what's the short term margin outlook, et cetera. But really stepping back, Paul, you know, there's, there's one thing I think that, you know, we really got to improve and that's our, our fab uh, cost footprint, and stepping back, you know, what are we doing about it? We're we're, we're building a billion-dollar factory, state of the art, New York, and that's our plan to go kind of fix that. In the meantime, we've just got to work through this, you know, call it kind of transitory period where we've got a bridge to Mohawk Valley. And as we work through that kind of suboptimal cost footprint, there are going to be periods where there's, you know, it's a, it's obviously higher cost. We run devices through that. We don't run materials through there. So if that surges ahead a bit in terms of revenue, you're going to get a negative mix. If the other side. Uh, of our, our materials product line starts to pick up a bit, and we've had you know, very good success there on cost, you'll see it kind of ed back the other way. So it's more of a, you know, it's, it's kind of the footprint that we're working through. And the other thing I would say about our margins, if you take a step back again, you know, there's, there's a couple of different pieces here. One is on the material side, we do long-term agreements. So our pricing, we've got pretty good visibility to out, out over multiple years, there are long-term agreements. The cost execution on the, on the material side has been very good. We've got a very good roadmap there, got a lot of confidence in it. So I think materials business looks, looks I'd say, very solid from that standpoint, and it is today. On the device side, we also do longer-term arrangements. We're looking at, you know, so let's say EV automotive deals that are going to ramp two, three, four plus, or three, four plus years from now. And we know what the pricing is for those things. So of those four components, there's, there's one that isn't fixed, and that's the, the fab cost. And we'll work through that in the meantime. But over time, as more and more revenue starts to come out of Mohawk Valley, as you get out to 23, 24, you'll start to see the the margins get fixed in a in a more you know substantial and permanent way as you get out to that time frame. In the meantime, you're just going to see this kind of period where you know we're going to ebb and flow depending on mix or cycle times, whatever you know whatever the the challenges are in the factory. But it really is a we've got a Durham factory that's suboptimal on cost when we get to Mohawk Valley. We'll transition through that. In the meantime, we'll just continue to you know, to grind it out.
0: And that was tremendously helpful. Um, I just want to loop two investor questions in together, uh, and it's to do with the competitive landscape, uh, Greg. It's really uh, first of all, is there a risk of some of your major customers insourcing since they have uh, silicon carbide manufacturing nascent capabilities? I'm thinking of uh, STM, uh, for instance. And then, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, what is it that would prevent uh, others from entering? In- to
1: this market? Well all of our long term agreement customers have some activity associated with insourcing. And quite frankly, if I was in their shoes, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. So I think their their thinking is very solid from that perspective. Some of them have acquired companies, some of them have acquired uh, you know, silicon carbide crystal growth capability, you know, and so forth. I what I can tell you is um, this technology is really not for the faint of heart. It's not easy to do. And so um, having a team and having an effort, you know, working on something is one thing, getting it to scale and getting it to cost and, you know, doing all that is, is a lot trickier. And they're doing that in the context of us being, you know, we, we were, we're about 60% share right now, and we're something North of four times bigger than the nearest competitor. Which is not one of those internal, you know, companies. So, so their scale is substantially smaller than ours. So we're using that, that scale advantage we have right now to drive our productivity up, our costs down, which then has those customers then um, doing expansion and extension agreements with us, you know, in terms of supply agreements, which then give us more scale which gives us an ability to drive costs down, you know, and we're creating sort of this virtuous cycle from that perspective. So I think their strategies make sense. I think it's harder than um, most people think. And I think they will be challenged on that. And then in terms of new entrants into the market, there's, you know, anytime you have a business and an industry that's gonna see the kind of growth that we're anticipating with silicon carbide, it's gonna attract money, it's gonna attract investment, it's gonna attract, you know, people getting into it but there's still a ton of barriers to entry. You know, the, the technology is not well understood in the industry. So you can't just hire hundreds of people because they, they don't exist, um, you know, out there in the kind of scale that you would with, with silicon. Um, you know, the, the silicon carbide crystal growth machines are all proprietary. You know, the, Rome has their own technology. We have our own technology. Um, you know, uh, Norstel and, and the ST guys have their own technology. So these are all machines you have to build yourself and, and figure out how to make them work. To grow silicon carbide, um, you know, it grows at very high temperatures. It can grow into one of a hundred different crystal structures and really only one of them is good. So, you know, you have this quality aspect and how do you grow it, you know, and so forth. So there's a lot of you know different barriers to entry and i think from from our perspective what it translates to me is a really simple thing run as hard as you can right now while you have a scale advantage and drive cost down as hard as you can right now while you have a scale advantage because that cost reduction will give you more customers those more customers give you greater scale and you can just keep driving that and that's basically what we've done so there's nobody, nobody letting go of the ball towards the end of the, of the game or anything. It's, it's driving as hard as we can and not acting like we have 60% share. We're acting like everybody's coming after us every single day. That's the attitude we have. And if we can continue to, to have that kind of focus and drive, it'll be better for us.
0: Greg, thank you very much. Neil, thank you very much. Tyler, thank you very much. And thanks everyone else for participating in the call with the Cree leadership team today. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, everybody, for your interest. Appreciate Appreciate it. it.